Today on Thinking Biblically, we're going to be looking at critical theory and why it matters. Speaking of past episodes, so far my most popular one has been from the end of September where I had a conversation with Dr. Joe Boot, and it was Joe who recommended this week's guest. So I'm very happy to introduce to you Andrew Sandlin. Andrew is founder and president of the Center of Cultural Leadership. He's also faculty of the H. Evan Runner International Academy for Cultural Leadership of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and the De Jong Distinguished Visiting Professor of Cultural of Culture and Theology of Edinburgh Theological Seminary. Andrew has been preaching and teaching and lecturing for 40 years, and during this time he's worn many hats. He's been pastor, assistant pastor, youth pastor, Sunday school superintendent, Christian day school administrator, homeschool father, journal editor, scholar, author, and itinerant speaker. He holds a BA in English, History, and Political Science from the University of the State of New York, an MA in English Literature from the University of South Africa, and he's taking doctoral work in English at Kent State University, and he holds a doctorate in Sacred Theology Summa Cum Laude from the uh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Theological Seminary. Andrew is married and has five adult children and four grandchildren. Well, that was a mouthful. I'm very happy to have you here with us today, Andrew. Well, thank you so much, Alan. And after that introduction, even I'm excited to hear what I have to have to say. I'm well, very grateful for you and thinking biblically. It's a great concept and uh, it's a privilege to be here. Yeah, I too have worn many hats. I also have kind of a list, um, including homeschool father. That's great. Uh, when did you start? Oh, my. And uh, well, it would have been about... Um, 1980, uh, was it maybe 86, 87? Of course, all our children are now grown. My oldest son's almost 40, and uh, they're all in their 30s now, so it ended quite a while ago. Right. So, yeah, we, we probably started around 1985, and, and that uh -huh. whole first few years, it was we were all pioneers. Right. Yeah, and yeah. grateful. So we have yes. 10 children, Okay. Um, and uh, so we're down to our last one he's 18 in his last uh -huh. year of homeschooling so that's yeah. been a lot of schooling a lot of homeschooling you bet um so we're going to be talking about this thing called critical theory which uh people many people have heard about i want to see if you could explore we'll get there like why people should be interested concerned uh but i have a feeling when people hear critical theory they're thinking critical race theory Right. Uh, would it help to first explain the difference between the two and then get into critical theory itself? Um, you bet. Uh, I can go ahead and start doing that now if you'd like, Alan. Yep, please. With that. Okay. Yeah, actually, um, critical race theory is the um, application of critical theory to the issue of race. Uh, critical theory began um, basically among German Marxists. Uh, in the uh, 1920s, and uh, there were a number of uh, Marxists at the time who came to the conclusion that what we call a classical Marxism or Marxism-Leninism that was to launch as a result of violent revolution was not going to work in the West. Uh, and uh, they gathered in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, during the time the Weimar Republic, before the uh, 
uh, of course, Nazi Germany in the in the 30s. And so they launched essentially an ideational movement. Uh, I believe it was Max Horkheimer, one of their uh, first ones that wrote uh, this seminal essay on critical theory versus traditional theory. And it can be very sophisticated, but I won't get into that. I'll just get into some of the basics. Uh, critical theory is uh, based essentially in the, uh, largely at least in the thinking of the uh, great uh, German philosopher early in the 19th century, uh, George Hegel. And uh, at the root of it is the notion that uh, the truth is in the whole, if I can put it that way, one scholar has, or that you, you need to have a full understanding of a philosophy of history before you can understand discrete, specific historical events. Well, they were also Marxists. And so to them, they believed that the real meaning of history was basically economic and uh, among economics that history was essentially a story of, uh, with respect to humanity, with, uh, of the oppressors and the oppressed. Uh, that um, basically is uh, at the root of uh, critical theory. Uh, their method, however, is uh, based on the notion that the meaning of history and the meaning of events is never transparent. There are always historical forces that are at work uh, that we can't immediately see. And that uh, very smart people, people like them, of course, have to step back and abstract uh, from all of these events something else that's going on. Well, it just happened because they were committed to uh, essentially a Marxist and a Hegelian dialectic that their view was that the main thing going on in history is uh, uh, basically a series of one group of humans oppressing another group. Now, to Marx, of course, because he is a materialist, uh, that was uh, <clears throat> economic oppression. And of course, we all know, or most of us know these French terms, bourgeois, bourgeoisie, the owners of the means of production or the capitalists, and they oppress uh, the proletariat or the workers at that time, the factory workers. Uh, and the goal of history, according to Marx, is to revolutionize these workers so that they can take control of the means of production and uh, equalize all the property. Well, now that's kind of a long introduction. What does it have to do with critical race theory? Well, uh, boiled down, critical race theory is the view that uh, the two oppressed classes are not the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, but uh, essentially um, whites, and it has come to be all non-whites. Now in America and North America, it's mostly black because of the tragic history of slavery in the United States, less so of course in England, more the slave trade there, but it's fanned out to include of course Hispanics and others. So critical race theory is essentially the notion that uh, Racism and the oppression of racism, uh, the inherent, uh, the, the belief in the inherent inferiority of uh, dark skinned people is so woven into a culture or a society that it's transparent. And uh, for instance, the louder that you and I, Alan, might claim, no, we don't believe that. No, we're obviously not racist. No, we hold the biblical view that that itself, they would argue, is very proof of our racism that it's uh, this idea is transparent to us. And that's where they get the idea of systemic racism. Uh, there are a number of other points here I'm sure we can explore as we go along, but that I think is the best sort of summary distinction of critical theory in which critical race theory is rooted. So when you said at the beginning that 
critical theory was contrasted to um, traditional theory? Is that what you called it? Well, uh, yes. Yeah, so for Horkheimer, traditional theory is like Cartesian. That's a good point. I should have elaborated. Thanks for reminding me. Um, so what they would call traditional theory is essentially the idea, and it's a, it's a Christian idea and a biblical idea, that one can look at separate, discrete, historical events, decisions, actions, and make a valid judgment. Uh, for instance, we look at God's law in the Bible. If someone steals and is convicted of stealing, then he should pay the he or she should pay the penalty for that. Uh, now, uh, critical theorists would say, well, that's uh, oversimplifying the matter. It's not possible to understand this event apart from, let's say, a history of exploitation, a history of oppression, uh, particularly if this person is a poor or this person is black or this person is a female or this person is a homosexual or, or whatever the case may be, if this person is an oppressed class. So traditional theory held the view that one can look at a situation and without denying that there are other factors, nobody denies there are other factors like original sin and people's background, but nonetheless, we can actually deliver an analysis, an analysis and a verdict on a particular decision, a particular event uh, by looking at it and applying uh, eternal moral principles. If we're Christians, even a lot of non-Christian people, enlightenment people would do that. Well, that's precisely what uh, the uh, critical, uh, critical theorists were arguing against. They said you can't take those, make those verdicts or judgments without a deeper, more profound, more holistic understanding of history. And of course, that's transparent only to people that think about it, very intelligent people, people like them, of course. Now, of, of, when we look at history, um, we should be looking history within context and, and factors that, uh, so it's, we look at a particular event where uh, this neighboring tribe assaulted the, the, their neighboring tribe and looted them and did certain things. That's not the whole story. To understand what happened, we would need to know more hist historical background, their motivation, and that sort of thing. And that could change the, how we understand what actually happened. But there's something about critical theory that is more than that. Yeah, it is. And that is the transparency of it. So the point about it is that critical theorists want to say that what we assume to be the causes, including historical causes, are not apparent to us. They're not empirically apparent. So just uh, if that, I may stop you there for a second. So uh, I think a lot of us, when we hear the word transparent, uh, we think of honesty. But right. you're using it as it's like we don't know that there's a window there. That's how That's transparent. Right. If you only knew there was a window and that window has a frame and that frame is part of a house. It's part yes. of a whole structure, a system. If you could only if you're able to see that then you could understand what's on the other side of the window. Yeah, that's that's a very good, uh, very good metaphor. And as Christians, by the way, we do believe in forces of history. Uh, ones like the original sin. Why do people act the way they do? Well, we see a particular discrete event. Ah, that's a result of original sin. Or someone does something good, we could say, ah, that is the image of God in man. But you see, those are not to be classified with <laughs> what critical theorists believe. Those are actually transparent to us. Uh, we know, as somebody wisely said, original sin is the only Christian doctrine that can be empirically proved. I mean, we just sort of look around. We can't empirically prove the Trinity, but we can original sin. We can look around and see it everywhere. Um, and the man is created in the image of God, or at least for people who don't believe that, has a higher purpose. It's higher than the animals. 
Uh, but that's not what critical theorists were thinking about at all. Uh, moreover, and this is, I guess, a key distinction, all critical theorists, like all Marxists, are uh, identitarian. So they are not able to look at individuals uh, with respect to their own responsibility, with respect to their own identity, but always a part of a group, and that group gives them identity. Uh, now, of course, to the original classical Marxist, that was the, the bourgeoisie or the, or the proletariat. And, uh, of course, to the critical race theorist, that's black or white. Or correctly, white and non-white. That's how they would say it uh, today. <clears throat> and, of course, this is also true with respect to so-called gender studies, heteronormativity, and so on. So, for them, the, that is principally the issue. These distinctions are not distinctions between one individual who does something right or wrong, a, a white person or a black person, but rather a person who is white and therefore a part of whiteness, a black person who does something, and therefore as a result of his or her blackness. That's a fundamental distinction. So I, I've heard people critique critical theory by making statements such as, and I'm not necessarily quoting, that really we are all simply individuals. <clears throat> But is that really true? Are, don't we come we come into the world with our own histories and our own uh, cultural contexts and our own um, in various things that we've inherited from our forebears and the geographical regions we're in that plays a part in who we are and how we relate to the world? They do, and that's why radical individualism, such as we would see, for instance, uh, from Enlightenment thinking, that was one of the great errors of Enlightenment, to see sort of the radical individual, the autonomous individual, the naked individual, uh, governed by reason, as a separate, discrete entity. Now, that is just as wrong in its own way as this sort of radical identitarianism that we're talking about. In fact, in large part, that's what the critical theorists were we're essentially reacting against this uh, Kantian notion, and even before that, a Platonic ancient Greek notion of the uh, the sort of the isolated individual. You're right. The Bible, too, opposes that. Uh, we all are a part of an identity, of course, first the human race, and then the only two races, really, the Bible cares about, the race of Adam and the race, in, those in Adam and those in Christ. Uh, those are the only two really fundamentally important races in the Bible. So, yes, I don't dispute that at all. Uh, I think it's more so not the fact that there is a genuine corporatism and collectivism in the world. There is, but in this um, this uh, radically secular identitarian construction, uh, philosophical construction of uh, critical theory. Um, when you use the, the only two races that really matter, um, are we not moving into a uh, a material definition of race versus a spiritual definition of race? Well, I mean, let's think about that word. Um, as I was reading this morning something in the Chronicles magazine, the author made a very good point. He said that maybe we should abolish that word race, uh, not because it has a single meaning and its meaning is bad, but because it has an elastic meaning. It means so many different things to so many different people. And on the Bible, the term race, I mean, it's not, uh, of course, that's in English. It's not Hebrew and Greek. But in Hebrew, race just means basically families. Uh, you would say, oh, here's my race. It would be you and your children and grandchildren and so on. It had nothing to do with what necessarily with what we would call ethnicity. Now, because of genetic factors, 
Of course, people often had, you know, similar skin color. Sometimes they married outside their, quote, what we call today race, skin color. They would produce a, a mixture, but that's not what the Bible means when it uses the term uh, term race. So that term race has become very elastic. So I was, of course, sort of, uh, when I was using the term two races, I was sort of using it with uh, apologetic quotation marks, the way the term is today used. But uh, in many ways, that term could be abolished. Uh, the idea, and the fact is, there have been so much inter intermarrying historically that it's very, very difficult to use that. And frankly, uh, one real error of critical race theory is that it becomes nothing but a construction. So you have, for example, uh, black conservatives uh, like uh, Thomas Sowell or Walter Williams would be considered whites or Oreos. And uh, the opposite uh, is the case of some whites like um, people would joke about Bill Clinton, the first black president. Well, he wasn't really, but what they're really saying is race is not actually inextricably tied to ethnicity, but is actually an imputed construction as a co imputed social construction. Increasingly that is how the term race is used or whiteness or blackness. Right. So it's actually more along the, the lines of class. It is. And right. some people have made that point. That's in that sense, that shows a real connection to classical Marxism. It's right. in many ways, it's become more class than it is, than it is what we would call race or ethnicity. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if I would get in trouble but for what one of the things that I'm seeing in, in the some of the clashes that we're dealing with in our societies is it's a form of tribalism. Yes. And I could say that because uh, my wife and I, being Jewish, we're from the tribe of Levi. We're actually yes. we know our tribe. Yes. And, and a lot of I, there's a lot of Christians today, instead of talking about denominations, they're talking about their tribe as a way yes. to define the, their particularities, even though they're part of a larger family, they've got these particulars. But now what's happening, um, and I hope it's clear to our, our viewers as well, this relationship between critical theory and critical race theory is that the world is being seen through the, the lens of these classes yes. or races or whatever you want to call them. and. I get the impression that somebody from outside of us is boxing us in. Yeah, I think that's that's true, and it's very tragic. And I must say, though, I am a socio-political conservative. Many professed conservatives are just as guilty uh, of that. Um, they Can you sort explain of see that? Them, yes, uh, certainly in the United States, the the class of uh, sort of the. Um, uh, the rural class, the white working rural class, that's my class, that's my tribe. Um, they'll sometimes jokingly refer to themselves as rednecks, and that itself is not the problem. But seeing that as their identity, and that they must all think and act and talk alike. If you live in a city, for example, uh, you're not a part of that tribe, even though there are plenty of good uh, conservatives, Christian and otherwise, that uh, are urbanites. So while the left has... Uh, uh, certainly predominantly tribalistic in its own, the ways that we have been talking about. The, the right can do the same thing. And it really is tragic. I know you were mentioning about uh, Jewishness. I think people don't understand. They uh, think about the Old Testament and the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham, though it came obviously from physical Abraham and his loins, was not limited to ethnic Jews. Any Gentile that wanted, as long as he came and submitted himself to the rights of Israel, could become a part of the covenant people of God. So it was not fundamentally 
about ethnicity or what we today call race. It was rather about religion. It was about being in covenant with God. If I was really prepared, I would know the title of the essay by G.K. Chesterton that speaks about the misnomer of race and nationality and how it's completely reversed in people's minds compared to what it really should be. Because what you just uh, explained about in the history of Israel, it's true. There there were ways to come in, and the the idea of ethnic as... as, um, like genetic, made of your of your DNA and the way we might think of it today is a misnomer. But it it's is. according to Chesterton, if I can remember it correctly, and maybe you're aware of this essay. Um, so uh, the French are a di- in his day as it is today, were a group of diverse ethnic yes. groups, yes. all self-identifying and and yes. uh, legitimately so as French. Same thing with yes. with with the British. The British are not yes. a monolithic, homogeneous group of people. It's yes. diverse. Then we get to Canada and the United States. Well, we Canadians, we don't really know who we are and hope you, you Canadians right. out there are not offended. We're still trying to find out who we are. Except the Quebecois, right? <laughs> well, but as a, but they're, they're regarded as a distinct society that's never right. been fully recognized. Right. Um, but, uh, Practically speaking, a lot of even a lot of Canadians don't know that Quebec has its own immigration uh, uh, um, uh, off like off ministry, um, while the rest of Canada has the Canadian one. Uh, I'm, my wife and I are originally from Montreal, and and we've lived in and out of of the province of Quebec more than once. Um, and back in the days when I didn't have. Um, tax software to use and we did it all with pencil and paper i used to do four tax returns uh one canadian each for me and my wife and one quebec one for each each and my wife uh in some ways the province of quebec has something like has a one up on the rest of north america because it possesses such a strong self-identification and I, I get distracted by what we're, I'm in Ontario here. In Ontario, it's the opposite. Maybe you have something similar in the United States, I don't know. So in Ontario, there's a strong Canadian identity that really is about being Ontarian, but we call it Canadian. Right. And, and this is just a thing that people do in, in grappling and get, in getting to know who we really are. And right. from the little bit you've shared about critical theory, there is this an imposition upon societies today of people telling us who we are. That's right. And then that begs the question, who are we really? From a, from right. a biblical point of view, how are we to look at, because the, there, there are economic classes of people that does, mm-hmm. that does exist. You know, mm-hmm. th- th- there are the people that are never going to own a yacht. Right. And and um, in my own, you know, I grew up in a, in a household like so many. My father was a, a factory worker uh, uh, in, in the in the needle trade. Um, and he, so he was a worker. Um, and then later on, I got to be an entrepreneur. So I owned my own business. It was just me. But the, the, the mentality of owning one's own business compared to the mentality of an employee is totally different. Right. 
and approach life differently. So would you like to venture on how the Bible actually sees this? And I know it's, it's easy to say, you know, there's one there's one race of human beings apart from the, the spiritual thing that you mentioned about you know mm-hmm. being in the Messiah but uh, so we're all born into the world in Adam all the same but the experiences of people and the and there is uh, economic disparity and there is injustice in the world those are real things how are we to look at that if if critical theory is not the the goggles that we should be using or the glasses that we should be using. Yeah, um, I have a good answer to that. In my view, the Bible advocates what is somewhat close to what uh, we would term today classical liberalism. I don't mean by that uh, modern liberalism. (coughs) Excuse me, Alan. Uh, I mean the uh, older um, pro-liberty philosophy of life deriving from uh, England and um, the early uh, American experiment, and this is also true in Canada, which is um, uh, equal, uh, the free society, uh, equal weights and balances, uh, holding up the individual uh, with dignity and permitting individuals, you talked about, let's say economic disparities. There's one society, uh, one philosophical foundation, I should say, for one kind of society in the history of the world, one alone that has allowed dramatic changes in those economic disparities for the better, and that is classical liberalism or the free free, free economy. Uh, so you're right that not everybody will own a yacht, but at least in these free societies, if not every individual can own a yacht, every individual can, almost every individual, unless impaired in some way, can do better, can do, let's just say we're limiting it right now to economics, can do economically better than he is. And in fact, that's happened millions and millions of times in the history of Western civilization, particularly in the last 200 years. Well, to me, this is the outworking of the basic biblical idea of the individual sanctity of property. Uh, The Bible permits that. The Bible opposes stealing, including state stealing or uh, socialism. So when you have a society arranged like that, it doesn't solve all problems. We can't create utopia. Uh, The uh, utopian temptation always creates, uh, when it's acted out, dystopias, whether it's uh, Stalin's Russia or Hitler's Germany. The idea we can create the absolutely pure, the absolutely perfect just society is is a dangerous, destructive heresy. But the biblical approach is that you have, if, if you have a largely virtuous society that's bounded by law and the rule of law and individual liberty, many of these difficulties, not all of them, but many of them, if not uh, abolished, can certainly be mitigated. And we don't have to speculate about that. That's actually happened historically over the last two or 300 years in the West. So when I, when I hear people react to critical theory, in particular critical race theory, uh, more than once I've heard some white guy tend to say, and I know some non-whites say it too, but it's often a white guy, and it's usually about the United States, um, that United States isn't racist and just dismisses it out of hand like that. And I think I understand some of the reasons why, but is there not still prejudice in the hearts of people and aren't there people 
in North America that are oppressed, or is it a, is it an, an illusion made up by critical race theorists? Well, good. No, certainly there is great prejudice. I'm glad you used that term. Um, <clears throat> here's a thought experiment. Um, I think you and I and I, all your listeners, at least I hope all of them, would acknowledge that racism is a sin. But if I were to ask them the question, show me in the Bible that racism is a sin, they might scratch their heads. And the fact is, racism is what we call racism. It's a sin because it's what James called the sin of partiality. It's a sin of thinking one's better than another. By the way, it's not limited to race. It could be limited to all sorts of other things. So that's the sin. It just happens to be based on skin color. And of course, it's very evil. And yes, of course. In fact, this prejudice is so widespread in so many cultures, it would be a mistake to think that it's a Western problem. In fact, historically, it's not a Western problem. Uh, if we relate it to the issue of slavery, the highest percentage of slavery in the history of the world was not whites uh, owning blacks, but actually lighter colored blacks, only darker colored blacks on the African continent, northern, basically the northern, uh, North, North Africa. Uh, it's truly remarkable. In fact, many of the slaves brought to the United States or brought to Britain by um, Britain were actually people were originally enslaved by Arabs and, uh, and uh, Muslims or Muslims in, in North Africa of the sub-Saharan Africans. That's not the whole story, of course. So yes, prejudice is widespread and yes, it happens in the U S but of course the historic racism between China and Japan is notorious. And, uh, other races. So it's very widespread. That's a sin of the human heart. In other words, there's nothing really distinctive about the sin of racism. It just happens to be the great whipping boy today of critical race theory. Uh, yeah. But that can that not lead us then to say, okay, okay, Andrew, so it's not about skin color. It's about the ruling class oppressing the, the working class. And that's what's wrong with the world. If only we can have uh, equality then we would all be happy, happy boys and girls. Well, I mean, that that's more of a classically Marxist approach. But uh, <clears throat> the biblical view is that a, a hierarchically arranged society is permissible and inevitable. The question is, is it benevolent or is it malevolent? Uh, there will always be leaders. There will always be some people that are wealthier than others. Uh, that's what happens when you have, let's just say again, economic liberty. That's what happens. Um, enforced equality happens only as a result of the coerciveness of the state that robs people of liberty and creates, as it did in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, uh, an but abject when, form. But, you know, if if the if people aren't sharing like they should and they're being mean and hoarding everything, shouldn't some even more powerful force step in and, and, and make them give up some of their stuff? Well, no. Uh, first, it never happens that way. That powerful force is generally the state, and the state doesn't redistribute that wealth. Socialism is not really about the redistribution of wealth from uh, the wealthy to the poor, but the re redistribution of power from citizens to the state. So essentially what happens is the state creates a vast bureaucracy that enriches itself by taking money from the wealthy. Uh, the other thing about hoarding is that the fact is um, you and I both know fabulously wealthy people and they don't hoard their wealth. What they do with that wealth is they put it in the bank or they invest it. And guess what happens when they invest it? 
that creates businesses. And guess what those businesses do? They create jobs. So uh, in large measure, what happens when there's increased wealth, that includes uh, increased wealth across the board. Uh, and that happens almost everywhere. Now, that won't solve another problem. And that's the, that's the bottom line of a lot of this, Alan. That won't solve the problem of envy. It is true that in a free market society, the wealthier get wealthier. It's also true that the less wealthy get wealthier. It is also true that the wealthier sometimes get exponentially wealthier with respect to the less wealthy. But everybody, virtually everybody gets wealthier. And we know this, for example, by the, how the term poverty is sort of uh, constantly uh, redefined. Uh, today, one person could be in poverty and own a television set and an automobile and eat meat uh, uh, seven times a week. Yet that person would live in a, let's say, an 800 square foot apartment that uh, 100 years ago would have been, been considered luxurious. But uh, today is not. So why is that? Because of the advances in the standards of living as a result of economic liberty. So actually, what has not changed is the designation poverty. But what constitutes poverty has, in fact, changed. But factors like that are not ones that people who are driven by envy want to hear. Yeah, and I, I don't know if people caught that that you said that I know people that are ex extraordinarily wealthy. And all I could say is, you know who you are. I don't. Um, I would um, I'd like to, to turn to a passage that um, and, and get your reaction to this in the context of our conversation. And it's the passage from Isaiah 61 that Jesus read in the synagogue in Luke chapter four. And he opens up the scroll and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Doesn't he sound a little bit like a, a critical theorist here? Yeah, that's an, a great question. The answer is no, but they have won the PR battle on that. So uh, The fact is, when, when Jesus Christ speaks about the poor and he speaks about those who are oppressing the poor, he's talking about those who are employing the legal system in a in a, a contra-biblical way to gain wealth. There is a wonderful book on this I'm going to hawk. It's not mine, so I'm going to promote it. Jerry Boyer's book, The Maker and the Takers. He's done vast, um, again, The Maker and the Takers by Jerry Boyer. Vast research, produced a very small book, maybe 100 so pages. He's pointing out that in every case, when Jesus Christ himself criticizes the wealthy, it's always the extractive elite. It's always near Judea. It's never up in the north, uh, where he said there's much more of an archaeology and studies have indicated that was more of an entrepreneurial class. Uh, for instance, the rich young ruler, we, we use the expression rich young ruler. He says, actually, rich young politician is what he's talking about. What Jesus is constantly upbraiding is people who get their wealth by oppressing the poor. How? Not by simply making money, not providing jobs, not by, you know, gaining income from other people's work, as Marx would say, not at all, but rather by uh, extortion and extraction through heavy taxation. And that's true throughout. And by the way, this is also true in the Old Testament. Numerous times, as you know, in the Old Testament, the prophets are reprimanding uh, so many of the Israelites. Well, what are they reprimanding? Not the guy over here that's simply working hard, but those in position to manipulate the law in order to harm their brothers and sisters. 
That, of course, is evil. So the problem isn't fundamentally wealthy versus non-wealthy. It's those who employ, who violate God's law and his holy standards to oppress and harm those that are less fortunate. That's an evil thing. And all Christians, everybody should be opposed to that. So then, but is that what what Jesus himself is talking about, about proclaiming liberty and, and so on? in his context, in this early stage of his ministry? Yeah. Uh, you mean uh, proclaiming liberty to those who are uh, widely uh, oppressed by these uh, practices of an extractive elite? I think for the most okay. part, yes, I really do. Um, that's just because this is this actually was the history of, uh, had a wide history, tragically, in, in uh, ancient Israel. And the... <laughs> Essentially, Jesus Christ was speaking in the line of those ancient prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. Jesus was the latest and perfect prophet when he was doing that. But again, this is dealt, I'm, I'm amazed at the remarkable exegesis that's gone into that book, like I said, the maker and the takers. But um, yeah, it, what happens is it's easy to read into those texts certain modern ideas that we have, generally Marxist ideas we have about oppression, rather than understanding historically what was going on. You might know more about all the history of all this than, than I do, but it seems to me that one of the, the real problems with the, any of these systems that thinks that they have the answer is that there's a tendency to not include ourselves in the problem. And to and to and play the blame game. Um, and I have the I get the impression that the people who've really known freedom in life are those who've truly connected with who God really is, what He's provided to us in Jesus, and then went and lived the life that God's given them to live. Yes, I think that's right. I think this is not merely a matter of theory. Uh, if I may borrow a Marxist term, it's a matter of praxis. Uh, that's certainly true. Uh, God has called each of us to live according to his will, and he hasn't called each of us to do the same thing. He hasn't given us the same gifts. He hasn't given us the same destiny. In many cases, I think, and I'm sort of swinging back around to a criticism of critical theory and critical race theory, uh, to turn the tables on them, they don't believe sufficiently in diversity. It's the biblical faith that affirms diversity. Uh, that there are different ethnicities, that there are different gifts, there are different talents, there are different callings in life, uh, different health standards, and uh, all of these things. It's remarkable uh, how God must believe in diversity, because there's so many different kinds of people and different kinds of destinies. And um, to the, the problem with what you're talking about, the systems of thinking, I would say most of them are ideologies. It's a, a way of creating heaven on earth. The biblical view knows that only God will one day create heaven on earth. Man can't do it. The Christian approach, the in my view, what's called closer to the classical liberal approach, is not about creating heaven on earth. It's simply providing enough liberty within the rule of law, of course, not anarchy, so that people can, in biblical terms, work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, as long as you don't harm others, as long as you... Uh, pay people what you said you would pay them, as long as there's no fraud, as long as there's no molestation or violence, basically you're free to live any way you want. If we have a society like that, will it be a perfect society? No, because there's still sin. 
but it will be better, much better than a society that attempts to create a sort of utopia that doesn't take account of humans' influence. Yeah, and today it's almost as if some people believe that we could shame people into being nice. Right. Uh, some people are just plain mean. And uh, maybe we could force certain ones to not say certain things uh, on their Facebook page uh, or threaten them with uh, taking away their job or, or whatever if they say this or say that. But that doesn't change people's hearts. No. Um, and I found when people actually stop and get to know each other, which in, with some of the rhetoric happening today, we're not really getting that opportunity. You know, I don't think diversity training, uh, uh, anti-biased courses are, are going to actually um, change people's hearts. Uh, no. On the other hand, and, and, and I'd love to hear you to speak into this, you know, as a, as a Jewish person myself, grew up in Montreal, mainly in a, in a in a Jewish world, it's like growing up in New York and similar, and other imagine other Jewish communities in the United States. But Montreal is pretty unique this way in terms of of, of uh, um, how close knitted the the Jewish community is and the Jewish culture. And so I grew up almost like breathing Jewish air. Yes. And uh, I knew anti-Semitism was a thing because it's a thing, but yes. I didn't experience that any form of anti-Semitism until after I became a believer, and now I'm attending churches, and I'm hearing not so funny jokes for the first time in my life. And 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 um, I remember being one place, and and this lady at that time, much older than me, um, had some dealings with I think it was a Jewish real estate agent that she really didn't like, and I became the sounding board of all her bitterness to the Jewish real estate agent that she had. And so, um, you know, I, I imagine some people have never experienced prejudice, never experienced anti whatever, but it is a real thing. Oh, it is. And uh, I'll get a minute to the uh, anti Semitism among some sectors of Christianity, but I think, and this is what's a, an interesting point, Alan, I think that that is so widespread that that's why it can't be limited uh, to race. Uh, some folks, my forefathers came from a very, very poor part of the United States. In fact, the poorest, the Appalachians, Kentucky and areas around that, just disastrously poor and uh, uneducated, constantly looked down upon, discriminated against. I wouldn't presume to compare that to some experiences that many blacks in America had, but nonetheless, there's some similarities between those. I think it's true with those people that are handicapped. Of course, that would be politically incorrect even to use that language today, differently abled or whatever. Those with physical difficulties are subjected to, uh, that's a part of human sinfulness and the part of the human heart. And what Christianity does by God's grace and the spirit is to heal that. So we treat all one another is created in God's image, whatever the political viewpoint, whatever their ideology. Uh, with respect, specifically with respect to Jewishness, um, I must be honest and say the Christian church has not by any means always had the best record in treating the Jews. That's true of the Roman Catholic Church, perhaps even worse of the Lutherans. Martin Luther wrote a blistering essay called Against the Jews, which is just out-and-out anti-Semitism. I happen to be a part of the sector of the church, the reformed sector of the church that, by God's grace, has a remarkable 
uh, remarkably high view of the Jews uh, because of the fact that they were God's people originally. And when Christ came, he expanded uh, God's covenant people to include the Gentiles and see a, a wonderful future of the Jews in, in the church as I do. But there's no, there's no question, sadly, that there is this anti-Semitism. But I would say that's not a Christian problem. That's a human problem. And it's a problem across the board. And the, the true Christianity, the change, when the Holy Spirit changes the human heart, then part of it is changing that particular sin of partiality. That's what, that's what race, what we call racism. That's what it really is. Yeah, and it it took me it it, it took me quite a while to to grapple with that whole issue. As a Jewish person in the church hearing some of these things, and it's so easy <clears throat> to then kind of to then take a superior a superior view of these ignorant Christians saying these. Um, very misinformed things about our people and it would have been easy to never realize that our hearts are really all the same and that when we're in those positions and situations uh we become like we could become like the very people that that, that we think are are bad um yes. i remember uh, we have this uh years ago living in another city with with this dear a friend who uh, her parents were German. She was German too, but she grew up in Canada. And she's telling us about how she had seen the movie The Nuremberg Trials, mm. the, which I've never seen, but it's about the, the trials of the Nazi judges, I believe, that sent Jewish people to their deaths. And I asked her something like, what would you have done? And she thought for a moment and she said, I don't know. And I thought that was the best answer she could have given mm-hmm. because that's the honest answer that that without the power, the grace of God working in our lives, we could, we could be the the worst of the worst. Right. I know so many people, not me, and that and that's when you've been victimized. Um, and my people have a history of being victimized, and we're grateful that that. Um, we've gotten to this stage of history, but um, we know it in North America, some of the um, many, there's a high number of the acts of, of, of um, terrorism, whatever you call it, in, in North America against Jewish people. It's anti-Semitism is still alive and well. And I remember when uh, uh, the some months ago with the tensions with Hamas in, in Israel, there were uh, protests in Canada, United States, and hearing some of the things that were said and done towards Jewish people made me and my family afraid, which is hard to believe in uh, in uh, in the 21st century. But it, but it's a real thing. But so when it's so easy to develop a victim mentality, and then think, you know, we're the better ones. But before yes. God, no one's the better ones, and we yes. all need to 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 humble our hearts before him and and beg him for his mercy. That's right. And if and if we would only do that, I think we would find some of the solutions to some of the problems that critical theory and critical race theory are trying to solve. I, because I'm sure that's I, true. I, some of the things they're talking about are real problems, but how they're understanding the problems, the roots of the problems and the solutions is where we would differ with them. That's right. 
Well, thank you so much for, for doing this uh, with me today, uh, Andrew. If people want to contact you, find your books, how should they do that? It'll be a long answer, so I'll try to get to it. <laughs> the website is christianculture.com, christianculture.com. That's written solidly. My blog is Doc Sandlin, again, written solidly as one word, docsandlin.com. You can also get my sign up for my free weekly e-newsletter. Uh, on Substack, just search for my name, P. Andrew Sandlin, on Substack.com. iTunes has uh, lectures, CCL, not just mine, but others. Lectures, sermons, podcasts, uh, YouTube channel. Just put my name in. You can get the YouTube channel. And uh, finally, I think finally, uh, on uh, BuzzFeed, you can see, um, get other video and audio stuff. So that's a lot of stuff there. But if you go to the website, you can at least get a direction to some of the other stuff. Right. So I'll, I will put the uh, website address, a couple of them, the christianculture.com and Doc Sandlin. That's not dot. It's Doc Sandlin. D-O-C. D-O-C is in cat. Yes. <laughs> yeah. DocSandlin.com. So again, Andrew, thank you so much. And uh, folks, reach out to um, Andrew Sandlin if you want to get to know him better and uh, explore some of his writings and other things that he has done. And so this is ends another episode of Thinking Biblically. Uh, please, if you want to email me, you could do so at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Um, you could check out my Alan Gilman YouTube channel. I'm going to be like, Andrew, I can give you this long list now. Um, it's not as long. Uh, but everything you could find at thinkingbiblically.org and email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Mm-hmm.